0: Welcome to Co-op Energy Talk. I'm Rachel Johnson, the Member Relations Manager here at Cherryland Electric Cooperative. And today we are going to be talking about a topic that is near and dear to all of our hearts, and that is power supply. And uh, joining us to do that is a representative from Wolverine. For those of you who aren't familiar, Wolverine Power Cooperative is Cherryland's power supplier. But in addition, it is a co-op just like us. It is comprised of five distribution co-op member owners who uh, also sit on the board of Wolverine and um, have a, an all-power requirements purchase, all-power purchase requirements agreement. Am I saying that right?
1: All requirements. We have to buy everything.
0: That's a better way to say all it.
1: All our wholesale power, we have to buy from Wolverine.
0: And Wolverine's pretty awesome so about... it's a
1: have-to contract.
0: It's a have-to contract. And Wolverine's pretty awesome about uh, doing that for us. The Wolverine co-ops serve 270,000 homes and businesses throughout Michigan. And really, in the last several years, Wolverine has put a lot of time and energy into uh, rethinking our power supply portfolio and really modernizing our power supply portfolio for on behalf of both the distribution co-ops, but the members we serve. And so we invited uh, Zach Anderson, who is the vice president of power supply at Wolverine, to join us today to talk a little bit about some of the things going on in the industry and then also specifically about what's going on with Wolverine's portfolio. So thank you for joining us, Zach. Thanks for having me. And then, of course, in case you didn't all already recognize the voice, my, my trusty co-pilot, Tony Anderson, our general manager here. Good morning. I'm,
1: I guess I'm the have-to voice. I have to be here.
0: <laughs> no, everybody wants you to be yeah. here. So I guess to kick us off, I thought we might just kind of lay the groundwork with what's going on in the industry. Because I think what I've noticed, is, at least here in Michigan, for a while there was all this talk about power supply, right? And it was, we were going through a new energy bill, and then all of a sudden now we're not really hearing a lot about what's going on with power supply in Michigan. So, Zach, from your perspective, where are we at now as a state and as an industry?
2: I think the energy bill in and of itself, that gets a lot of attention, and everybody's focused on it, and everybody's thinking about energy, talking energy, and then you're right, there's a there's a lull after. It's, okay, now we're done, right? And we've seen this over the last 10 years, really, and you go back to environmental rules that came in that led to coal plant retirements, and that's a lot of what the energy package was about. That's a lot of what we're seeing in the marketplace in terms of change is that go back to the mercury and air toxins standard that came out that forced coal plants to either clean up and put a, what's commonly referred to as a, a back end, some type of scrubber system to clean up mercury emissions. And it was either make that choice and invest a significant amount of capital, hundreds of millions of dollars, or retire those units. And some of those units that were older that did retire were part of Consumers Energy here in the state. They retired what they called their Classic 7, their J.R. Whiting plant, their uh, Weedock plant, and their Cobb plant. And anytime you see retirements happen, people start looking at, okay, what is coming on the grid to replace them? So that was about a 1,000 megawatts, and uh, since 2008 and the um, – renewable portfolio standard in the previous energy package, we've seen a ramp up in, re- in wind. And this is just generally what you're seeing in the market is coal retiring, more wind and renewables coming on, and then natural gas coming to replace it. And Wolverine's certainly been a part of all of those things as far as we retired our coal plant many, many years ago, almost 20 years ago now, um, way ahead of any of those rule changes, just surely because Older coal plants aren't as efficient, aren't as economically viable, and brought on new renewables ahead of the renewable portfolio standard, and brought on natural gas in that time time horizon. And just more recently, within the last 18 months, brand new gas plant, new renewables. And so that's what you're seeing in the market is 1,000 megawatts of coal goes away. We've seen a, about 2,000 megawatts of wind come onto the grid. And then a slower pace of new natural gas led by Wolverine really going first with 400 megawatts of new natural gas at, at our alpine power plant near Gaylord.
1: So what is being built today? Well, today, What are TT and consumers building anything? Wolverine's project is done, so what construction do we have going on across Michigan today?
2: Really not a lot right now. And back to the energy package again, that was the focus is We know coal's going away. What are we doing to replace it? Consumers is really holding tight right now. They had an air permit for a a new natural gas plant at their Thetford site. They let that air permit lapse, and they've kind of taken a wait-and-see approach. Uh, What we're seeing from DTE now is they recently submitted to the Michigan Public Service Commission what's called a certificate of need or necessity to construct a new thousand megawatt natural gas plant at one of their existing sites. And what DT is talking about doing is what Wolverine's done, what consumers has done, how are they going to retire their coal plants? Because they have a significant amount of coal and really through 2030, there'll be a fair amount of aggressive retirements again about, um, we're looking thousands of megawatts with them and through 2050, really moving to decarbonize their footprint. That's the big thing that DT is talking about right now is their decarbonization, but that runs out through 2050. And they've got um, one of the largest coal plants in the country, very efficient plant in Monroe. That's expected to stick around for a long time to come. But their other coal plants, River Rouge, St. Clair, Bell River, are all slated to to come off sometime in the next 15 years, and they're really working through that, and they'll sh- they're starting with 1,000 megawatts of new natural gas. On the renewable front, we've really seen things slow down on that development. Like I said, we've got 1,800 megawatts of renewable wind, primarily, some small solar here and there, 50 megawatts being the largest, um, but it's primarily wind in the state, at that 2000 megawatt number. And we're not seeing a lot get done right now. And that's become issues in townships. And it started at townships and now it's really going county by county, project by project. The anti-wind movement has said, they're too tall, they're too big, they're too many. That's their three-pillared approach to kill wind. And they've really found a game plan in working through Michigan's really unique um, regulatory landscape where individual townships and in many cases and in some cases it's at the county level where you have township zoning county zoning so you just go to one small township and you can really kill a multi-million dollar dollar project and i'm not taking a position on whether that's right or wrong it's up to the township to decide what's best for them but really the anti-wind movement has pushed a lot
1: of wind off and made it really difficult to build new wind and would you say five years ago we didn't have an anti-wind movement per se, really? Uh,
2: there's always been a, a little bit of that, but not like this. Not an anti-wind movement that was moving to kill projects. And you're talking about, in many cases, from DTE to other large developers um, – that are in the wind space across the country, the next NextEras, the Exelons, that are really bona fide, multi-billion-dollar companies that have a lot of ability to construct facilities and influence politics, really starting to lose the ability to build projects. And the most recent um, moratorium that went in in Huron County, which is some of the best wind resource in Michigan, and what I mean by that is you see the highest production factors from those projects which means higher production factor equals lower cost and so really cost effective projects are are being defeated at in the at the county level and you have companies that have spent millions of dollars and very large entities that just can't win this fight over over local zoning and i think some of it is just the the aesthetic and we do have a lot of wind in a compressed area primarily centered around as we affectionately for, refer to Michigan's thumb on the mitten, and so I do understand the the blinking lights and so many turbines in a in a smaller area we haven't seen wind move outside of that um, uh, Bay Area thumb area,
0: you know it's interesting too because one. Change I have seen in terms of the public conversation is really a, a hierarchy of a renewables that I didn't notice in the environmental movement five seven ten years ago. Uh, in fact, yet literally yesterday I had a phone call with someone where they said, "Well, there are bad renewables and there are good renewables." Well, that is a completely different way of thinking about renewables because traditionally the push has been to how do we most effectively clean up our power supply, and now it's well, you know, here's wind; it's just as clean as solar if we're being honest. But there is a, a, a a, a tendency now to say, well, solar is a better renewable than wind is, which is um, it, challenging and also kind of frustrating, if I'm being honest, because for a long time we had environmental groups asking us to do this. We did it. And then they come back and say, well, well I don't like how you did it. Well, that's that's, that, that, that's a frustrating um, public conversation, yeah, I guess, about when, it.
1: Especially when solar is half the capacity factor of wind. And, and
0: also quite a bit more expensive. Now, granted, yeah. it, it produces at a different time. It, it can have a different value. I, I yeah, understand that, all those pieces. Yeah. but
1: That is disheartening.
0: It, it, it feels to me. And one of the things that Wolverine has done, I think, well, and, I, and I'm excited about is thinking of renewables as a, a blended portion of our portfolio. And so to the extent that wind made sense, it, we've we've brought in a lot of wind, and now we'll layer in solar and let that renewable portfolio continue to blend, based on what what is what is the the most cost effective way for us to meet our goals. But I, that is a really smart way to do it. I'm not convinced the public conversation understands that.
2: Yeah, and and that's really the transition of our portfolio is we we were aggressive early on wind, and then we took advantage of wind as it became more economic. And you look at our portfolio today. I said there's 2,000 megawatts of wind out there. We have 200 of those megawatts. So we have 10% of the renewables in the state, and yet we're only 4% of the load. So you look at what we're doing on renewables, we're clearly the leader in in that environment. And then we were willing to do more, and we got caught up with uh, our developer on a very economic project. And it was the same thing. It was, it was township by township type issues, but we were looking to go to uh, 30% renewable and have uh, more wind in our portfolio. But now looking at what we do next is, I don't, I don't see that as, as a viable option for us right now in the marketplace. Those projects aren't out there that are that economic, that are in the best interest of our members over the next 20 years. So then you take a step back and you go what do you do and to, to your really great point on good renewables bad renewables what's where's the right place to be we're always trying to find that balance in our portfolio between how we find the most economic power supply meet the right environmental objectives and make sure it's all competitive and stable over the long term and that's that's what we really liked about the 30% position but as i said the economics on renewables aren't where they were just because you can't build them in the best best locations anymore. So now what do we do is, was our next question after that. Are you looking out
1: of state at all?
2: We certainly can. One of the things that's challenging from an out of state perspective is not so much that it's not available. It's that Michigan's a peninsula. So you think about driving on the interstate highway system across the country go through a city like Indianapolis and it seems like every interstate somehow flows through Indianapolis. It's the same thing with transmission. You've got all kinds of transmission that can move across the open plain states and, and trade energy. Well, just like the interstates, you see it uh, in Michigan with our peninsula nature. You can't just drive through. We've got these big and beautiful Great Lakes that surround us and we all enjoy those it makes it difficult to deliver renewable from out of state just because you don't have the available transmission. You've got bottlenecks around Chicago. We've got bottlenecks in the Upper Peninsula into the Lower Peninsula. Different challenges. You've got population centers versus uh, a non-population center in the UP, which has been the transmission challenges. People say, just like they said with rural electrification, well, nobody lives up there, so we shouldn't look for transmission solutions. That's a challenge that we face, is how do we get more transmission into Michigan to allow renewables to flow? And I don't see that changing in the, in the near term.
1: Isn't the regional system operator looking at that transmission connection in the UP, doing a study to see how that could benefit the region? And shouldn't that study be completed next year? That study is complete.
2: It is complete. They, they completed the study to interconnect the Lower Peninsula, Upper Peninsula, to Canada and Ontario. And they concluded again that it wasn't economically viable to make that connection, and so
1: yeah, I had not heard that yet. That's disappointing. That that ties us to a ton of renewables.
2: It does, and that continues to be the challenge. Is that we have a clogged artery between the two peninsulas here in Michigan. There's a there's a cable there, but we don't have the ability to export and import generation through the upper peninsula because of transmission constraints.
1: So that idea to go through the upper peninsula is dead now then, or how do you breathe life back into that?
0: It's very, very sick,
1: right? It, it's certainly never dead because that
2: opportunity will continue to exist and make sense. It's just do we have the, the political will and, and capital to, to see that get to done? And some of the challenge, when you look at renewables and just how things are, are built out now, you look at projects like the Mackinac Bridge, would we do that project in 2017? Probably not. And it, it, it takes a lot to ramp up on a project
1: like that, like UP Transmission, and I don't know if we'll, get it, we'll so ever see it get done. Where does the political will have to come from? The grassroots, the politicians, the elected officials, the utilities—whose political will or who,
2: who's—it's some of all of the above. Part of it is you. We don't see the the big utilities fighting for this, and, and that's a that's a transmission thing. That's also um, an investor-owned utility thing. Uh, people don't want to. They don't want to pay for it, and if MISO the midcontinent independent system operator who did that study looks at it and says there isn't enough economic viability to charge all the market participants and those market participants stretch from Manitoba down to the Gulf of Mexico then that that rate impact comes more onto a region or Michigan upper peninsula lower peninsula and that makes it really challenging from an economic perspective on on the ratepayers and those in those narrower areas.
0: And I I would assume that now that there is a study specifically saying it doesn't make sense to do it, it's very hard to get legislative political will for it because they're going to say, well, look, we we, we looked into this. This study tells us this is not worth pursuing, so we pursue other things. Mm -hmm. The The thing that's unfortunate in that conversation is that it wasn't just us being able to get renewables that would benefit from that tie. It was also a better solution for the Upper Peninsula in terms of reliability and redundancy of power supply, which now, not that there aren't other ways for them to skin that cat, but they're not as good of a ways, I guess, is kind of what I've heard.
2: Yeah, it's it's just like you all do with your distribution system planning. Anytime your engineering team, Frank Sepkert, you look at an option, you want to have a loop. You want to be able to feed... That home or that business from multiple directions, and so if you think about the UP right now, it's basically directionally fed from Wisconsin, and then it ends at the at the Straits of Mackinac. It's a it's a radial system. If you look at it, making a stronger connection to the Lower Peninsula, as I said, there is a connection there today, or making a loop through uh, Ontario in through Sioux Canada. Again, you have a loop and you have redundancy, and so from an engineering perspective, a reliability planning perspective, anytime you can get a stronger loop to feed from multiple di- directions, your system operates better. That's why Cherryland has really high reliability as you build loops versus, hey, I'm, I'm at the, literally the end of the line on a radial system
0: absolutely so before we transition off renewables and i and i do want to talk about alpine but i there's another thing that's going on in the public conversation about renewables that i would love both of you to weigh in on and that is there seems to be this real push for local 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 and so again in that kind of hierarchy of what renewables are good renewables local seems to be the the hot thing um we've i think as a a co-op we've worked hard to to um facilitate local projects. We've got a, a really large project going up in Leelanau County with one of our members, but there are also challenges and disadvantages to, to all, building all your renewables at that scale. So I wonder if you could just weigh in a little bit on how how you see that playing out and what, what is the best balance of local versus centralized.
2: And I think working together, we've we've tried to find that balance in encouraging the local projects with the buy-all, sell-all program. At, you want to have a a project at your home or at your business. We'll pay you 10 cents. We'll pay you for 20 years. It's a it's a good deal to encourage those local projects. Knowing that a local project, a small-scale project, is nearly twice as expensive as doing a project at scale. Projects at scale require more capital, certainly require more land in order to do that, which makes them, when you're talking about local um, from a land perspective, if you're looking at Traverse City, for example, trying to find the available land to build a project at scale when you need 50, 100, 200 acres is really, really difficult. But you're sacrificing that economic advantage of doing a project at scale when you when you move away from uh, the the local area.
0: What is the calculation of like acres per megawatt for solar?
2: It, it depends on your site, certainly, but a good rule of thumb is to say one megawatt, five acres. Okay. Um, de- depending on trees and hills and all of that, um, you may need seven to ten, but usually you can get about a megawatt on an acre here in Michigan. And out in Arizona... You can pack in a couple of megawatts, if not three megawatts, on five acres because you can lay the panels flat and really low to the ground, so you don't have to worry about your front row putting shade on your on your second row. And we have to worry about that here in Michigan because we're so far north in terms of latitude, so the sun is
1: to the south and it makes it more difficult. We always have to also have to worry about the snow shading as well in Michigan that they don't in Arizona. You know. Uh, as far as the the local question, it should be noted that we're just talking solar. When there's a local versus not local, it, it's all about solar. Nobody's talking about local wind. Nobody wants to touch local wind. They want wind in somebody else's locality. You know, thumb wants it over here. We want it over there. Upstate wants it. Downstate. Downstate wants it. Upstate. Wind. Nobody wants it local. It's the, the whole local conversation is all about solar. And solar is the hot and sexy renewable right now. And so people want to see it. They want to be able to stand out by it and touch it and drive by it and point to their neighbor that, yeah, that's my solar. Uh, but they really need to consider price. And, and Zach's entirely true when it's scale. You, you know, you need to have volume in any type of fuel, whether it's coal, wind, solar. You need to have volume to drive the price down. Little onesie twosie projects don't cut it.
0: So actually, let me just say you handed me the best transition to the Alpine plant ever. So if if I'm doing my calculations correct, if you had 200 acres, you could you max out at 40 megawatts of solar. Does that sound about right yep. to you? Yep. How big is the spl- the the plot that that Alpine is on?
2: For the 400 megawatts at Alpine, we have it on an 80 acre site, and a lot of that is. Aesthetics, wanting to make sure we're, we're good neighbors and we have uh, a boundary. But the footprint itself of the, of the generators, you're 10 to 15 acres for 400 megawatts.
0: Because I, I think one of the pieces, and we're starting to see this, but I think we're going to see it more and more, is that as we look to expand renewables, not just in, in Cherryland and Wolverine's portfolio, but kind of across the state, across the country, there is a significant land use impact of transitioning away from what I can get, 440 megawatts of clean natural gas on a, let's say, max 80-acre site, to 40 megawatts of solar, which has a lower capacity factor as well, on a 200-acre site.
1: Yeah, that's where solar is headed. I I don't think we're there yet. People aren't too concerned about using up a a bunch of land for solar, but as solar grows, and it is growing right now. That's going to be the what we're seeing with wind. Don't want it in my backyard. We're going to see that with solar five to ten years down the road, in my opinion, when it's like, whoa, we can't make any more land. You're covering it all with solar panels? No, we can't do that. you got to put them on a roof or do something different. That, and, that fight yeah, is and, coming. And, and
0: rooftops certainly seem like an interesting – now they've got the um, – shingles or whatever that oh, yeah, are solar it, and, maybe you know, options like that. But
1: it ruins your economy of scale, too, because mm-hmm. y- your price is going to go up when you go back to rooftops and stop yeah. because you can't get the volume. Mm-hmm. Two acres of rooftop is a lot of rooftop. And I would say,
2: certainly we saw it early on with wind, and you mentioned the local wind. You talk to anybody in Benzie County, there was a Duke project that was proposed probably almost 10 years ago mm-hmm. now that people don't forget that they didn't want that wind and they still don't want wind. So that's, that's the local element on that front, but we're already seeing it with solar where people are coming to townships to say, I want to put up this much. And people are saying, well, we don't want it to cover the farmland or that's tillable ground, or we could, we could plant Christmas trees there or something like that. There it's, it's harder to cite because of that land use perspective. And that's already with solar where we haven't seen it go out to the scale of wind. So uh, we'll see what happens.
0: So uh, one of the ways that we're replacing coal and also backing up our intermittent renewables is natural gas. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, the Alpine plant? We brought it on 18 months ago. What has it done since we brought it on and how has that contributed to, to Michigan's energy
2: it, it certainly helped a lot. I mentioned at the at the open the retirement of the coal plants, seeing a thousand megawatts come off the grid, the energy legislation with with capacity tightening, and through low cost natural gas, the efficiency of the Alpine power plant being that it's the most efficient uh, natural gas power plant in northern Michigan through the UP as well, it has run twenty percent of the time, which to some they might say, well, that doesn't seem like a lot. A typical plant for what we call affectionately peaking power, so hottest, coldest days of the year, that's when you're running that plant, is around 5%. So we're four times past that, which is exceeding our our wildest expectations of how much we would be running. And that's been a combination of the efficiency and natural gas prices, but also tightening capacity, where we see a day where you're looking outside and you're going, it's 60 degrees, kind of sunny, but... Alpine's being called on just because of its impact on the northern Michigan grid, which is which is great for us. And I know that we've heard from many that they were very very excited that Alpine was available for summer of 2016, just given the capacity tightening that went on in the state with with the coal plant retirements that we saw.
0: And, and summer of 2016 wasn't actually that hot. So it, if what happens if 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 you know in 2018 we have a really hot summer. Do we have a capacity problem?
2: Well, when we, when we saw summer this year, the end of September, so from September 20th to September 26th, where we saw days in the 90s, literally the hottest days of the whole year were at the end of September. Um, all of our generation was running, and that means almost 900 megawatts of natural gas online, and literally we were calling on our diesel plant to run. I don't want to alarm anybody, but that just sends a sends a clear signal that things are tight. Now that was influenced by end of September, normal, what we call a shoulder month. So nuclear plants go down for refueling. Other coal plants go down to go through their uh, preventative maintenance to get, they just came out of the presumed, Hey, here's summer. We ran a lot. Now we need to get ready to run this winter. So that shoulder planning season had a lot of units offline. That being said, our peaks were not nearly what we would expect to see in the summer. On a July day that's 90 degrees, you don't see it at the end of September just because the days are much, much shorter. You don't think about it until you're really you're faced with that and going, you know, we only get about 10 hours of, of decent sun on a late September day. Well in July here in Michigan, we get almost 14 or 15 hours of, of real heat and sun. And that makes a big difference on what our peak load is. And so it, we got to the point where people were starting to look at calling for public appeals to people to turn up their air conditioners, stop washing your clothes, turn off your dishwasher. We didn't get there, but that is a, a real thing that we're prepared for, and uh, we have the, the generation in our portfolio to, to handle that. But we are interconnected to the broader grid, so it it continues
1: to be a consideration if we do have a hot summer again. How does Alpine support the grid if there was a natural disaster or a transmission issue if we're cut off from Chicago? How does that support our local grid? Could we power part of northern Michigan with Alpine?
2: Absolutely. Um, Without walking through how all of that is is tied together but you start building your system from a single plant and and supporting the grid and one of the unique things about the alpine interconnection for a plant of its size it's interconnected at 138 thousand volts what we call 138 kv typical plants of its size are connected to the the larger grid the 345 kv network if People go to the soccer fields here in Traverse City and they look out and they see the really big steel. That's that large, large, large transmission. Alpine's interconnected to the still transmission, but it's at a a lower voltage, which does allow us to have more of an impact. We can impact the 345, but also being interconnected at 138 does help as well. So we would start at a smaller power plant to re-energize the grid and then work to get Alpine online to help bring Northern Michigan back in the event of a of a catastrophic outage. So it's it's very beneficial to northern Michigan.
0: So we, we don't have a ton of time left and I and I do want to make sure that we talk about kind of what Wolverine's power supply portfolio looks like, kind of where we've come from, where we're going, and what, what twenty eighteen and beyond looks like. So can you kind of just talk through some of that?
2: Yeah, and I, I think anytime we're talking about our portfolio, it comes down to what we call the five pillars of power supply. And that's asset ownership, diversity. What that means is we want to have a lot of different fuels dealing with different counterparties. If we're talking about contracts, not having all your eggs in one basket, it's just like your 401k. And then competitive, we want to make sure we're taking the the right amount of of risk, balancing it with the right amount of uh, cost control so that we're not just exposed to whatever the market does and then stable. So again, competitive and stable counterbalance one another. It's just like reliability. You could spend millions and millions of dollars making your system 100% reliable, but eventually you run out of uh, reasons and rational reasons to invest in that. And it's the same thing here. We could have 100% guaranteed locked-in rates. They would just be a lot more expensive than the rate you pay today.
1: Yeah. I think it's important not to blow by asset ownership because Wolverine hasn't always been into the asset ownership of those five pillars.
2: Yeah. And I talking about the the ownership gets at the environmental piece. And that's the that's really the the fifth piece is when we look at long term where we're going on renewables and what we're thinking about, it does start to come back to solar and ownership and why asset ownership is important is when we see projects being developed we know we can execute on a project like we did with Alpine to execute it faster and more cost-effectively than than anyone else could do and so when we think long term there's a competitive advantage that we have in ownership that gives us the price competitiveness the stability and control over that project coming to fruition and so When we talk about environmental stewardship and what we do next on renewables, we've built one small project, we're uh, working to build another small project with one of our other members, and we'll continue to look for opportunities to um, expand renewables, and I think focusing more on how we can do that ourselves for the long term will be the, the best direction for us on that. And the last piece on environmental stewardship is when we look at 2018, being 56% carbon free. And so part of what we saw when we're not going to be 30% renewable, what do we do? We still wanna see our portfolio modernized. We still wanna be leading the transition to cleaner forms of energy, low, form, uh, low carbon forms of energy. And we're really, really excited to be going into 2018 and really hitting on all of those things. We own Alpine. We have diversity of fuel. We still have coal in our portfolio. We have uh, now some nuclear contract in our portfolio. We have um, wind, solar. We have really an all of the above approach, so hitting on that diversity. And then from a competitive standpoint, our power supply costs go down next year. They go down again in 2019. So we're becoming more competitive as we become cleaner and more low carbon coming into our footprint so and
1: and it's important to point out in in spite of the U.S. pulling out of the Paris climate accord and despite whatever's going to happen to the clean power plan Wolverine's ignored those essentially and said we can be cleaner and we can lower our price and so very proud of that very proud to be part of Wolverine for doing the right thing and the affordable thing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I feel like we can't tell that story enough, and I'm excited to continue to tell it in 2018. I think that what what we have, what you all have done at Wolverine and what we're doing here at Cherryland is world class in terms of our ability to deliver to our members modern, clean affordable, reliable energy. And and it and like you said, all those things are, are at times competing with one another. And yet we are going to have one of the most carbon free portfolios in the state as of twenty eighteen. And I, I think and I think that's just phenomenal. Mm-hmm. I'm super excited about it. And and kudos mm-hmm. Zach to you and your team for for making that happen.
2: Thank you. It it really comes down to who we are as co-ops and that Working with our members and working together to say, what makes sense? Should we do this now? Should we wait? Staying flexible in the market to take advantage. It's, it's a collective effort that gets things like where we're going done. And uh, I look forward to being able to continue to build on that success and continuing to work with the members to how do we get better every year to be more competitive, to be, continue that environmental stewardship that we all value so highly.
0: And it's it's really kind of the ultimate implementation of the co-op model and the vision for Wolverine when it was started. So you had all these distribution cooperatives that said, said in general across the country – We can't have enough expertise in power supply, and we can't be big enough to negotiate and effectively get what we need. Let's create another layer of co-op that will just do generation and transmission on our behalf. And and we're really seeing the benefits of that model with what you're able to do still as a not-for-profit co-op, but having this kind of highly specialized expertise so that then those of us at the distribution co-ops can do what we do best, which is build and maintain the infrastructure it takes to get all that into our members homes. So and it's and a pay our power home. bill. And pay the power bill, yes. So uh, I had a, a request prior to the beginning of this podcast to do two layers of fun fact. So we are going to do two layers of fun fact, but we're going to start with your uh, industry or co-op fun fact before we get to the personal fun fact. So uh, Tony, do you want to kick us off with, the, with your fun fact?
1: Yeah. Our National Association, NRECA, uh, has 86 co-ops participating in a National initiative to hire veterans. It's called Serve Our Country, Serve Our Co ops. And those 86 co ops employ more than 400 veterans as line workers, cybersecurity professionals, accountants, and other positions.
0: That's awesome. Thank you for mentioning that program. Zach?
1: Yeah. So, my
2: fun fact today it comes back to who we are as co ops, which is giving back those margins that we make to our members. And so, up through 1999 Wolverine was formed in the in the late 40s and up through 1999 had not retired capital credits. We were facing power supply struggles and trying to really hard to get our feet under us and then once we did, we started retiring 3 million dollars of capital credits a year up through 2015. The last 2 years though, we've accelerated that fivefold and retired 15 million dollars of capital credits, so a total of 30 million over the last 2 years and it's what we should be doing, but we're really excited about that to be leading generation and transmission co-ops across the country. And not only the frequency, but the volume of those capital re- credit retirements back to our members.
0: And that actually fits nicely with my fun fact, because I wanted to mention that this December, Cherryland is retiring $2 million to its members um, the bulk of that being the retirement we received from Wolverine and us passing that through to our, our membership. And you'll see it on your December bill if you're listening. And since 2009, Cherryland has retired over $20 million, which is a, a significant uh, retirement back into our local economy. And across the country, uh, electric co-ops retire over $800 million annually. So co-ops are having a big economic impact in their regions and also living out that business model of of a uh, shared economic um, stake in the cooperative, so now we're going to do a uh, second layer fun fact. Zach, tell us a, tell us a fun fact about you or your family that no one knows.
2: So this one to try and tie the being part of a co-op and then tying the veteran piece back together is uh, my my wife's paternal grandfather lives out in South Dakota. that's where she was born and raised. and uh, he still lives on the original family farmstead that uh, got co-op electricity from the local co-op FEM Electric all the way back in the late 1940s. So 20 years on the, on the farm, World War II veteran, and uh, without electricity, come back from the war, gets electricity, and he's been on that same place for the last 70 plus years now. And uh, just a, a cool piece of co-op history that we not only are losing a lot of our World War II veterans, but those original co-op members that were the first ones to see the lights come on. So kind of a cool piece of personal history for me.
0: And and mine is actually very similar. So my grandparents' farm is a Midwest Electric member in Ohio, and they lived on that farm when it was electrified way back in the early 40s. Um, Neither of my grandparents are still alive, but now my, my cousin lives in that same farm. So it's been in our family that entire time. So it's amazing the it's amazing how those of the generation of us who gets to take it for granted still does have deep connections to the generation that remembers how hard they worked to get electricity to their homes and businesses. And, and Tony, yours?
1: I'm totally blindsided because I was told to bring one fun fact. <laughs> so now I have to come up with a second fun fact off the top of my head. But as long as we're talking about co-ops and, and getting started, my grandfather was a co-op director in like 1962. And he hired the co-op manager that 20 years later would hire me. Oh, so, that's cool. There you go. Pay it forward. Pay it forward.
0: That's really cool. I I love hearing people's personal connection to cooperatives because that that is the bread and butter, getting people to understand their personal connection to this cooperative and what we're trying to do. So thank you both for joining us. And, And Zach, thanks for the update. We'll have you back again. Power Supply is always fun.
1: Thank you. Thank you.